G'day, g'day, and welcome to the Baffled A's podcast. I'm your host, Tom O'Halloran. Welcome to episode 10. Today's episode is a ripper. Earlier in the year, the training and podcasting juggernaut Power Company Climbing came down under. Chris Hampton is the man behind the wheel of Power Company and has been in the coaching game for a long time. He knows his stuff. So when he said he and his wife Annalisa were coming to a trip down under, I couldn't resist asking if I could stick a microphone in front of his mouth and ask him some of the bigger training questions. We don't get into fingerboarding protocol breakdowns here or energy system nuances. That stuff is far too confusing and for me gets in the way of actually getting to the gym and trying hard. I've listened to millions of hours of crazy nuanced nonsense. It's hard to then actually apply any of this into a training program, let alone normal life of work, family and all the other things outside of climbing that make our lives feel full. In this hour, Chris and I have a talk about the bigger view to your training, the benefits of recording your training, when you need to switch up protocols or stimulus and the importance of taking a proper critical eye to why you might be falling off your projects. Chris mentions the podcast he did with Ava Lopez about fingerboarding in this episode. I'd highly recommend it if you do want to get into the science of that kind of stuff, go and take a listen to that one. It's super worthwhile. There's a stack of other really great information in there in Chris's back catalogue of episodes as well. So trust me, go have a listen. They are worth it. Stay around to the end of this. After I bid you farewell, there's a great little anecdote waiting for your ears. The main episode is waiting for you now though, which starts with Chris and I talking about trying to wade through the crazy amount of science and find the common sense. Because far out, you read some of that stuff that's out there and listen to some of the podcasts and just get so caught up in all the stuff that's it's going overwhelming on. totally overwhelming and th- there's coming from i guess back in the day like it was so simple like you watch the videos of ben and jerry and read what they were doing and it's just like that's a really easy thing to do basically they're like i'm not strong enough i'll try harder and make the grips smaller or add more weight or something and the seem to be a bit more of a common sense thing. Yeah, and and honestly, I think that's still a really valid approach. You know, obviously, we don't want to get people injured the way Jerry got injured. Yeah. You know, we don't want people taking years off climbing because their elbows hurt too much. Yeah. Um, but that common sense approach is still incredibly valid. Mm. And, and I think, in a lot of cases, probably better than this really uber complicated you know super data driven scientific approach that people are taking now not that there's anything wrong with that yeah data driven approach yeah um but i see quite a few people miss the common sense yep in worrying so much about the numbers yeah because it's like it is cool to see that you know for years it was always like oh imagine if there was some rad data on mm-hmm. climbing and there was just no research and we couldn't really find out what was going on. And in the last, I guess, five years, maybe a little bit more, it's really picked up and there's a lot of really cool info coming out about how to do all this stuff. 
but in a way it's definitely made it more complicated and there's the protocols out there that people are testing like for the lattice board stuff but even that it's kind of an interesting thing to have in the background but the strengths and weaknesses of a 8c climber or a 7c climber in spain is going to be different to the blue mountains because it's a different style of climbing that right you're performing and so the blue mountains you need better finger strength than maybe getting pumped on spanish limestone and stuff like that yeah and you know the the data and the the big reliance on the data also causes this weird ripple effect of people trying really hard to extrapolate things from that data mm. that that really has no correlation I see it on the internet constantly. When I had Ava Lopez on my podcast recently, she that was one of the things she was most concerned about. Like people take my research and then extrapolate all these wild things from it and it doesn't say any of that, you know? Um, but it's what people want. We want confirmation that what we're doing is right. Yeah. So we'll seek it out in every way possible, even if it means lying to ourselves <laughs> in order to do that. Yeah. You know? Yep, definitely. Uh, yeah, I've certainly lied to myself a lot in the past and will continue to do so. Oh, yeah, in man, the me too, for sure. <laughs> One of the, I was over in Seuss last year and it was just raining so much and it got to the end of the trip. I've never been on a trip like that. <laughs> it's, it's not so, raining here at all right now. No. <laughs> Beautiful sun coming through. We'll put the windows down, the uh, blinds down in a minute. Um, yeah, towards the end of that trip, I started thinking, as you do, about heading back home. And we were coming back in the middle of June, I think it was. And so, that's kind of like pretty prime time season for the Blue Mountains if you've got a warm jacket and a thermos and some psych. And I had a bunch of projects that I wanted to do. And I'm always psyched on trying to climb outdoors. And so, it was difficult to know which way to shoot, which project am I going to go for. And is it the one that I'm most psyched for or whatever? So to try and work it out, I I sat down and said, okay, there's these four projects that I want to do. When is the best time at that cliff to get these done? And wrote them down and it was like, okay, June to September and September to December and, you know, whatever else. And then wrote down, I need this strength. So it was like, I think I did out of five stars or whatever. So my strength needs to be at a four for my body strength. My fingers need to be at a five. My endurance needs to be at a three. And it was the first time I'd taken, it, it seems quite simple, but it seemed quite profound in a way to actually work that out properly. And it really gave me a, an awesome direction as to what I was going to do and then directed my training. It's like, okay, cool. I can do this project and that will lead into this one. And it's all kind of building up. And it helped me design a, a program that I felt confident in and an and approach for the next six months of climbing until summer hit us in full full swing and yeah it it was really quite good and so I'd be interested to know how you go about 
putting together a training program for someone when they come to see you and, and what you think are, are good approaches and, and factors to consider? We've just got a wheel of training programs and we just spin it and choose. <laughs> no, Guess I, what? You've got crimps. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think actually your approach is maybe the best approach because you have an intimate knowledge of what do I need to get these projects done? Um, or I'm in Australia, so these projects done. <laughs> and and you've assigned these you know, these values. Mm. Here's what I need to hit. Yeah. And really that's the the big problem with having these universal standards that that everyone's trying to come up with. And I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Um, but those standards are generic by necessity. Mm. And you may not need to be able to deadlift two times body weight in order to do this route. Yeah. Um, you may not need to have, if you're a Red River climber, you don't need the amount of finger strength you do if you're a Blue Mountains climber. So, so those universal standards are a tough thing to go by. So taking it your way and being more personal about it is a really smart way to go. When we're writing training plans, that's essentially what we try to do when it's a customizable or a customized training plan. If we're writing it for that individual, we want to find out as much information as we can about their, their training history, their schedule, their goals, and really specific goals. I don't want them to just tell me, I want to climb you know, 29, that's not, that's not super helpful to me. I can just hand them a template for here's what to do to climb 29. But if they tell me I want to climb this specific 29, here's what the crux is. Here's why I'm failing. You know, here's how it feels to me. Then I can really dial things in. And I start with the the real simple things. If you tell me your training history, so if I, if you came to me and said, I want to train, here are my projects, I'm going to say what's your training history. Yours is fairly young. Mm. You haven't spent a lot of time training, but yeah. you have spent a lot of time performing at a high level. So I have to take that into account. There are some very simple training protocols that are going to work really well for you because you're just starting out. And I don't need to focus much on the, how do we try hard? How do we, what are the tactics? Those things I don't need to put much time into with you because you've spent a lot of time in those things. If you haven't spent much time fingerboarding, a really simple protocol may work really well for you. So that's the first thing I look at. Then I want to know your schedule, especially in your case, you've got a family, you work a full-time job, what's realistic for you to get into the gym? And what can you stick to? You know, what do you need in order to stick to a training plan? Some people need to have a training partner. They can't go in solo. They just won't get it done. They'll stay at home and eat cookies instead. If they need a training partner, uh, that's the first step. They need to get someone pinned down who's going to train with them. And we need to figure out what that schedule looks like for the both of them, not just this one person. 
so that I'm giving them every chance to succeed in getting to the gym as often as possible. That's, that's number one. Let's get them to the gym with consistency, you know, and, and I'm not worried about the, the energy system that they're weakest in at that point, because if they're not getting to the gym anyway, it doesn't matter what they're weakest in, you know? So, so really that's the, that's the first place I go. Yeah. Yeah. Just that's, if you're not showing up, there's no point in worrying about how your anaerobic capacity is. Yeah, exactly. Let's make it easy for you to get in there yeah. and, and get something done. Yeah. And so to then design your year or your season, you've got these projects coming up. I, I sat down and <clears throat> and came together with, okay, I want to do a bouldering trip now and I want to do... Um, uh, I've got a comp here and through these months is the prime conditions for sending my projects. And so working out as well from there is like where you want to be kind of strong or um, where you want to be fit and, and those sorts of things and where you want to rest. That was a big one for me that I've always tried to um, prioritize is taking that time off. Mm-hmm. Because I can get super burnt out and have nearly given up rock climbing because I got so burnt out a couple right. of years ago. And that was something that I'd just not really considered in the past. I'd always just climb and, you know, you'd have tweaky fingers and so you'd just kind of keep climbing because that's what I did. <laughs> I didn't yeah. think of resting. And so that was quite important as well as just making sure that your motivation is always high when you go in there and it's coming from a genuine place of wanting to, to progress. Cause it, it's yeah. hard that, you know, you're tr- trying hard is hard and, and takes a lot. And yeah, your training partners and all that, um, definitely make things feel a lot easier and better. Yeah. And it's different for every person, you mm. know, um, like I said before, it could be a training partner. It could be that, you work best when a new podcast comes out and you've got something interesting to listen to while you're training or mm. it could be all sorts of little tiny things, but give yourself that chance to succeed. I think that's number one. Uh, as far as rest goes, I'd say that's the thing I have to do most is hold people back because they really want to go hard. And especially when it's set up for them, you know, if I set up a plan that makes it really easy for them to get to the gym. And they're like, oh yeah, I'm in the gym four days a week. I'm doing these workouts. That's more than I've ever done. I want to do more. More is better. Getting them the rest and convincing them that you don't have to go into the gym every day. You don't have to climb every day. You know, you're 40 years old. Rest is going to be really helpful for you. Or you're going really hard at these sessions, even though you're only 22 years old rest is going to be important. So you don't end up in that. I can only try this hard sort of middle zone where you're not doing anything really high intensity. Mm. So I think you're right. And that's a really mature thing to recognize is that rest is massive for your progress eventually. Yeah. So where do you sit? Cause we, we hear a lot about a do as little as feasibly possible 
And in my mind, it's like, okay, cool. That's a few rest days a week. Just what I'm thinking. And then you hear of what other people are doing and they're training six days a week. They're doing 12 sessions a week. Like it, it's full on. And where does that sit with what you look at? Well, first I would say just ignore what everybody else is doing for the most part. Mm. Uh, especially if you can see it, then it's happening on social media or something to that effect. And it's probably a grossly distorted view of what's actually happening with no view at all of what's happened in the past. You know, uh, I had Kyra Condi on the podcast not long ago and Kyra trains a lot and trains hard but she's been training for a long time and she's built up to this volume that she's got over a long period of time. That amount of volume would destroy me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be, I'd be injured and out of climbing in a few months, but it works great for her. So I, ha- I think you have to a look at what you need. And I would say that I am a fan of as little as possible to get, to reach whatever goal it is you've got. That said, if you're a, if you're a new climber, if you're, you know, say you're climbing, you've never trained, you've naturally gotten to 23s and you want to break through to 24, 25, and you're a weekend warrior and you only get to climb outside two days a week, if that, then, then maybe you do need more you need higher volume you need to learn to operate when fatigued you need to learn to you know to go harder when it doesn't feel comfortable anymore to go hard I think that's a really valid and valuable part of training and progression that people tend to forget about in this era of do less do less do less and and I'm guilty of going too far in the do less direction and then realizing that I don't have the stamina. I don't have the, you know, the same sort of go for it at the end of a session that I used to have when I was a weekend warrior. And when I had to have that, when I, when I needed to get it done on a weekend, I was of that mind of, more training, bigger sessions. And that translated really well to the outdoors because of my schedule. Now when I can cherry pick my days, it's a little easier for me to, to do shorter sessions, to do less, to do as little as possible. I'm older. It keeps me from being injured. Um, and just allows me to rest more. So I think, I think it goes both ways and it really depends on you, your goals, your training age, all of that stuff I mentioned before. Yeah. You have to decide, is that a valuable part of my progression? Yeah. Figuring out how to be able to do more, have the capacity to do more. I mean, I think that's a, a really massive building block for any athlete is the capacity to do more. And if you skip over that, then, you know, you're just going to break. Yeah, yeah, because you see a lot of people, especially like in the mountains, there's a pretty good training kind of culture here. Mm -hmm. And you see people, we've got, we can climb year round, but summer is a bit brutal. You've got to 
kind of masochistic to go out and and get into it on some of the days and and so people definitely do go okay cool off season let's train and you see them just like ramp up to this massive amount of of load off the base of not quite so much and you end up getting those like a finger tweak or those dodgy elbows or your shoulder just starts to not feel good and and it's just like okay off the back of not much you've just increased 200 percent, and it just doesn't it kind of makes sense in retrospect when when you've not actually taken that good of a view of it and and i've i've done it before of just like all right sweet let's go full gas and yep i've blown out my elbows or, or whatever from just too much psych so yeah i always have to hold people back from that you mm. know beginning of training plans start kind of slow for most people and and a lot of people message me like i can do twice as much you know why do you have me here and i'm like let's let's see how it goes for a couple of weeks instead of one workout in you telling me what you'll be able to do. You know, let's trust the process. You hired me for this. So let's see how it goes with this load. And inevitably two or three weeks in, they're like, Oh, I'm starting to feel kind of tired. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Yeah. That's, that's the point here. I don't want you to blow yourself out in week number one, Mm. you know, instead let's ramp it up slowly so that your body has time to adapt to it. Yeah. Rather than just, because you've gone 100% in week one, you've actually got to start dropping yeah. the load. It's then week fatigue. two and three suffer mm. from your excitement in week one. Yeah. Super I've, common. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. Like we had a rainy weekend and you want to go train Saturday and Sunday and you feel super motivated to just go full gas 100% on Saturday. Because you're a frother. Because I'm a frother. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... um but I've done that and then you totally smoked yeah. for Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, actually maybe I'll just go to 90 or 85 or something on Saturday, which means that I can then go 85 again on Sunday. And suddenly I've done 170 of units of awesomeness on the weekend right. rather than... That's how I'm going to measure training from yeah. now on, <laughs> units of awesomeness. Yeah. And also, you know, there's, depending on how you define units of awesomeness, if you're, if you're trying to go super intense, high intensity on both days, recognizing that you only have a very small window of really high intensity is important. So you can go super high intensity two days in a row it just can't be these marathon sessions that people like to do. You know, you might warm up, go super hard for 40 minutes. And if you have the, the conviction to wrap it up at that point and say, okay, uh, my coordination is starting to drop just slightly for really hard moves, I'm going to walk out the door. Then you can come back and have that same high intensity session the next day. And then you're keeping it at 95%, you know, but you're not risking injury by going into that zone where you're a little bit fatigued, a little bit uncoordinated, 
but still have just enough to launch yourself to those tiny little grips where you're going to get hurt. Yeah, and you're having frustration burns yep. of like, no, I can do this, but you're coming off because you're not quite as mm-hmm. coordinated and, and into it. And then suddenly, yeah, you're dropping into your shoulder or your pinky drops off and you're loading up everything else. Oh, no, my pinkies stay off. <laughs> <laughs> That's climbing. <laughs> I'm I'm lost without my little dudes on the side and yeah. my thumb over the top. <laughs> oh man, I can't do it. Yeah. So to take that kind of less is more approach, how do you then look at adding in? So Well, if, let's can I stop you for a yeah. second? When we say less is more, we have to define less of what? So less volume if you're trying to be an intensity athlete, if you, if you want to be a really strong boulder and you can do lots of V6s in a day, but you can't do a V10, then we need to identify its intensity that you need more of. And in that case, less is going to be more for volume. Yeah. But but you can do more intensity and still still be in a good place, you know. So a two 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 hour sessions at eighty five percent is less intensity than one forty minute session at ninety five percent. Yeah. So I do think we have to be careful about just saying less is more because people are going to define it differently. Um, so most of the time we're talking about volume and just by definition, you can't be at high intensity and high volume at the same time. It's, it's going to dwindle very quickly. Yeah. And, and it's, and I know I'm just confusing things. No, it's really good because it's really easy to, and I've done it for years and we'll continue to do it. Mark how good a session was by how pooped I am when I walk out the door. Right. I want to be, have no skin and have everything completely knackered and unable to pull the skin off a rice custard. Yep. And, and redo the V0 warm up. Mm-hmm. That's the mark of a really good session. Yeah. You and 98% of climbers. Yeah. But it, it's not good. Mm-mm. Not in most cases. Yeah. If you're training for something where that's what you need, then great. You know, I'm I'm 100% okay with you completely wrecking yourself in a training session if you know that when you go to perform, you're going to have to completely wreck yourself. Um, most of us, though, have gotten to the top of our hardest route and we're like, oh, that felt really easy when I did it. So if we don't need to be completely destroyed to do our hardest thing, why would we completely destroy ourselves in a training session? It's more about how can I climb really well? How can I keep the intensity high and still keep my technique together, my breathing together, my mental game together, all those things at once. And, and frankly, that's really hard to do and really hard to connect with, which is why people just default to, I'm just going to do more because this stuff is really kind of obtuse and cloudy and hard for me to zero in on. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it, it's tricky to put your finger on what that is, but 
in in terms of the things that you're looking at putting into a session mm-hmm. what are you kind of looking for like there's obviously going to be some skill development things in there yep. and, and working on you, you getting a bit stronger and all that but how are you looking to put that stuff together? all the things you put everything in every training session yeah <laughs> um more is more yeah i i want to know what that climber needs in order to reach their goals so and those are the things that are going to be in every session sometimes it may be something that i don't think they need necessarily but they really like doing if it keeps them psyched great let's put it in there you know if they tell me i really love hangboarding and i'm like but your finger strength is fine we don't need to do a lot of that i'm gonna put some simple hangboard protocol in that doesn't take a lot of time that keeps them really motivated um so for me i'm just looking at what can i put into these into each session that one keeps them coming to the gym like we've already said i want them to get these sessions done and b what's going to get them a little bit closer to their goals and for that's different for everybody. Mm. You know, I'm not going to focus on I have to hit every energy system throughout the week if those aren't the things that they need in order to reach their goals. So, yeah, it kind of changing for each person and yeah, and it's it's got to be goal that they've got. And yeah, and that said, you know, I will say that I'm talking a lot about customizing it for that individual, but there are there are trends you can identify that, you know, most people looking to climb um, 24 needs needs these things. Most people looking to climb 30 needs these things. And and we do sell these ebooks that are essentially templates of those things. And I've been really surprised over time because I'm just like you. I get I look at all the social media, I look at all the articles, I listen to all the podcasts, I read the research the best that I can without getting bored out of my mind. And and I want to incorporate all of these new things I'm learning. And then I'll get an email about this training plan to climb 24 that I wrote in, you know, five years ago. And people are saying, this thing works like magic. You know, I've been at this plateau for six years. I did one cycle of this training program and I sent my project. So that's a good reminder for me that the really simple things can work. You know, the things that Ben and Jerry did to climb their first 7A pluses. Um, just the, the really simple, common sense sort of things can work really well. So I try not to get too complicated until we've exhausted other options and and have to go there. Yeah. What do you think those simple things look like? like- well, I mean, you said common sense earlier, and I think yeah. that's really what it is. Um, there's a big push in climbing training right now to not get super pumped and fail from being pumped. Yeah when you're training and honestly I think that 
we're going to end up with this generation of climbers who don't know how to handle being pumped um, because they're coming out of the gyms without having spent a lot of time in that zone. You know, so it seems like common sense to me. Let's let's get you pumped in your training. You may not be able to do as many sessions a week that way, but for my money, two times a week getting ridiculously pumped, totally out of your mind pumped and failing because of that and then stepping back and looking at it and saying what was falling apart when I got pumped, how can I make those things better? is a much better way to learn how to climb pumped outside than staying in this, you know, moderate pump for 30 minutes, five times in a row, like arc training would tell you to do. Mm. So, so I think some common sense is, is the answer to that. Um, initially yeah. common sense. Yeah. Obviously those things can go wrong. Like I said, you know, Jerry was obviously using common sense training and when it worked, he just added more and more and more and then he's injured for years and can't climb. And know? now he writes training books. Now he writes training books. <laughs> <laughs> and so they can go wrong, you know, and I think that's where the importance of all the data, all the research, you know, all the really smart people who are putting time into thinking about and talking about climbing training come in is that they're just telling us where should you stop with the common sense. Yeah. And, and I generally don't put anything in someone's training plan that isn't common sense until we've exhausted the common sense options. Yeah. You know. Where, how do you... I don't even know if I answered that last question. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're pretty much there. It's, um, yeah. Can you pull up to do the crux move no let's look at that right are you getting boxed at draw four at the fourth quick draw and there's still another six to go let's get in a little bit of volume are you having trouble getting snappy let's try some snappy boulder problems and yeah and you know you just brought up a, a great point i said common sense but i guess it goes a little deeper than that because you also have to step back and look at the big picture. You know, you asked me the other day, if you're falling off of a route because you're pumped, should you train strength so that you don't get as pumped on the hard moves or should you train endurance? Mm. And I think at the, when it's a question like that, you have to step back and look at the bigger picture because maybe you're getting pumped because you climbed the crux 20 you know 10 meters below like total shit and maybe that's why you're pumped maybe it's because you're the middle section of the route that was moderate climbing you know you your technique through there was junk even though it was easier climbing maybe you're just gripping too hard through that whole section or maybe it is that the crux is harder than your boulder grade and your having to output so much effort on that crux that you can't recover it in the rest of the the climbing. So there's all sorts of different ways to answer which should I train. But the way to discover the answer to the question is look at the whole picture and really be honest about 
where you're falling apart. It was one thing I discovered. I had a project up here in the mountains and I was filming myself on it Mm -hmm. and was just filming to hope to get the send footage. I'd film it, chuck the camera back in the bag, make sure the battery was charged for the next week, bring it out again, film it. You never went back and looked at the footage. I never went back and looked at the footage until uh, I was falling and falling and falling and falling. And I went back and looked at it probably three months in. I was like, oh my goodness, I am climbing the intro to the crux so slowly. Mm. And it was only, let's call it less than 10 moves. And they were piss, piss easy moves. But I was climbing it so slowly. And I was, it wasn't giving it enough grr, really. Mm -hmm. I should have just gone for it and gone quick. And I was probably taking three seconds per move because I didn't want to pump myself out and I wanted to be all relaxed and take it easy. And then as soon as I decided to actually go for it, I was feeling so much better for the next kind of intense 10 move or 12 move sequence or whatever it was. And yeah, I, I think going film yourself, it feels a bit weird, but it was so good to be able to see I'm not actually doing that that well. And you right. can see your sloppy footwork or you can see th- through the easy section that you've actually not got a sequence. You're just kind of making it up and searching for that footer. And it's really hard to be honest with ourselves and take stock of everything that's going on while we're climbing. Mm. Um, and you can build that skill uh, over time, the skill of awareness and being really aware of what's happening while you're climbing. But but it's pretty difficult when we're on things that are really hard for us uh, to, to notice small subtleties. And I think it's invaluable to have good climbing partners who are paying attention to that video is massive you know and and then just the ability to be honest with yourself so many of us get tied into grades or um you know if if that that section of that route that you're talking about might only be 24 26 whatever it's really easy for you so you're like oh it's only 26 you know it's piss i don't I don't even need to focus on that. Mm. But then watching the video of it, you're like, oh, that's only 26, but I'm not climbing it very well. Yeah. So, and it's tough to actually just be honest with yourself about that because you're like, oh, it's 26. There's no way I could be climbing it poorly. Yeah. And there's no way that that should tuck me up. I haven't fallen on a 26 in years, you know, well, of course it's easy. <laughs> Until last time I went to say and got my ass handed to me on every <laughs> 7B. I don't think I'd fallen on that many 7Bs since I was 14. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brutal there. Um, and so, it, you know, if we are in a performance phase, does what we do during a week change? Say, you know, we, we, we're living close to climbing We've got weekend trips pretty much each weekend. We're going to the gym a couple of times a week. Do you see what you do in the gym changing or even at the cliff changing in a performance phase rather than a um, an off-season kind of phase? 
Absolutely. Um, for almost 100% of the people I work with, I would, I would make pretty drastic sweeping changes to a performance phase. Um, and it's sort of how that looks sort of depends on what type of climber you are. If you're a, if you're a sport climber in a pumpy area, it's going to look a little bit different than if you're a, a boulder. Um, but essentially during those performance phases, I try to keep the one aspect of your, your physical profile. So if it's, if you're a red river climber, you need to be able to access your endurance 100% during your performance phase. So if you're a weekend warrior and you're climbing in the gym during the week, I try not to have you doing a lot of endurance oriented work. You might get a little pumped during the week. That's fine. Um, but I want to keep your power levels up, your strength levels up and not tax your aerobic endurance system or your anaerobic endurance system much during the week because I want that to be fresh on the weekend. Um, if you're a full-time climber and you're climbing a lot outside, you know, throughout the week, I might have some very, very short workouts for you to do that aren't getting touched on at the crag, but that's going to be it. I would rather you put your focus on performance and rest. Um, and I prioritize rest massively during performance phases. So, volume generally speaking goes pretty low for training yeah that's definitely um like you talk about the red river climber you're getting pumped on the weekend and it's easy to not look at that as almost a training session in itself like you're getting pumped you're taxing that system and it's easy to discount it because you're trying to perform but actually you got pumped quite pumped three or four times in a day or you know five times over the weekend or whatever and you're not accessing your strength and your power and they're quite quick to drop off and so you want to keep them as high as possible right and if you're a boulder or you know if you're a like the sport climbers near me in lander it's very fingery very powerful sport climbing so I want you to be able to access that power. I want you to be able to access your finger strength. So I'm not going to ask you to do a training session that really taxes your fingers the day before you go climbing outside. I would rather keep that aspect of it fresh. And maybe we'll work on your aerobic recovery a little bit. Um, And we'll work on general overall body strength or something like that. But but I'll try to keep the fingers as fresh as possible if if that's what you need on the weekends or on your you know performance days outside. Yeah, that's um, it's quite common sense again. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's also to- it's also sort of common sense to say my project requires this. You know, it's really fingery. So, and I'm only going to get there one day this weekend. So throughout the week, I'm just going to work on my finger strength. Mm. That's the place a lot of people go. And I think that's a mistake oftentimes. If it's not your limit, if it's, you know, if you're a, if you have the capability to climb 7C plus and it's a, your 
mini project for the season, beginning of the season is 7B, I might still have you training. I might still have that to focus as you're leading into your performance season. And we might tax your fingers a little bit and still send you out to your project because it's not at your absolute limit. When I'm talking performance, I want you really at your limit and I want that to be the priority, not not the training and getting and improving. I want all the improvement to come on your project, you know, learning the beta, learning the tactics, getting your mind in the right place and really taxing the things that that need that are required for your project, doing it on your project. Where do you see like if you've you've done all your efficiency and you're still coming off your project? Mm. Do you see that there's how do you approach that? Like, how do you, you're failing on your project on the weekend. There's still six weeks left in the season. How do you approach trying to get the last little bit out of it? Netflix. Netflix. <laughs> um, I think that, again, it's really important to be honest with yourself. And more often than not, there's, and, and again, this isn't going to be a across the board case, but very often you've gone through your normal steps of tactics and efficiencies and dialed it in the way that you normally do. But we don't spend a lot of time at our absolute limit. So our tactics are usually a product of being at you know a half a notch below our limit so there still could be room for better tactics a better link that you haven't done yet um so that's the first place i go then if we do decide you just need to be stronger you know if there's some if you're having that hard of a time holding this crux crimp then I'll say, let's make sure we've got all the other parts of the route dialed and we know it. Let's commit it to memory. Let's get video. Let's write it down. Let's do whatever we need to do to make sure we're spending as little time as possible on that next round. And then let's finish the season performing at a slightly lower level or on other things at that level. And then let's go into training really with the focus of Let's get you strong enough to use that crimp and let's keep all these other factors where they're at, you know, so we're not going to go super hard at your power endurance like we did the previous training season mm -hmm. because you've, you've got that. You just need to be able to hold this crimp. So let's really put our focus there much like, you know, climbing is really complicated. It's got a lot of factors that we want to constantly improve all of them. If you look at a sport like boxing, which, you know, we often compare climbing to gymnastics or um, skateboarding, I do often. Um, but really, when it comes to performing, it's more like boxing in that we're going up against this opponent who's got a very specific set of demands that we need to meet in order to prevail. And if you don't have that, you know, if you can't block uh, a right hook 
and that person is really great at a right hook, you're going to lose. So I want to set you up the best that I can to fight that person. And then we can move on to something else. Um, if it's in the situation that you're talking about where you've got this big project you've been working on, mm. you just can't get it done. You know, I'm going to approach it like a boxing trainer would, and we're going to, we're going to make you good for that specific route. Yeah. And that kind of leads into the, that off season. It's like, if it's not really worked out in this performance phase, mm -hmm. let's reassess and go again, work out what worked last time, what's not working now and get into it to, to make the magic happen yeah. next time round and become more resilient at all of that stuff and set up again. Do you see, like, there's the idea of that second tier mm -hmm. project. Yep. Do you see an importance in that throughout a performance mm -hmm. phase? Sure, absolutely. Um, again, it depends on the climber. You know, um, I've been working with Ethan Pringle. He's got some big goals coming up. I don't see a ton of importance for him to go out on his trip and do a bunch of second tier routes before getting on the project because he's got a massive bank of experience to pull on. He'll get comfortable on the project in a go or two for someone whose outdoor experience is pretty limited or they're, they are switching over to sport climbing after having bouldered for several years. Then I think those second tier routes become massively important for a lot of reasons. Um, number one, you're building fitness uh, at the specific type of fitness you need. You know, if you're if you're spending a lot of time climbing in the blueies, and you're doing second tier routes, you're getting the same kind of fitness you're probably going to need on your bigger goals. Mm. Second, you're you're clipping chains. I think that's super important. That momentum you get from sending a second tier route carries over. And pretty soon you find yourself clipping chains on lots of second tier routes. Then you carry that mindset of, I go through this process, I clip the chains onto your, your big goals. And I think that's massive. The one time I caution against it are for people who have really limited outdoor schedules and really specific goals. If somebody has, if someone's moving to, I had a client, for instance, move to Africa from Cincinnati, um, who, by the way, runs a, a group called Climb Malawi that's amazing. You should all look it up on Instagram. Um, and in his final season in the red, he really wanted to climb 7C+. I wasn't going to tell him, you should spend three quarters of your season doing these second tier routes. Instead, let's do those in performance or in, in training prior to performance while we're in the gym, while the weather's shit in the red, let's clip some chains. Let's do some second tier sort of routes. We can do one or two once you get outside, but then let's really start dialing in 
on the route you want to do. You know, let's start putting some actual time into it because this is the only window you've got and we have to get it done within that window. If you've got unlimited time and you're, you're coming back the next season, I think those second tier routes are massive. Yeah, I, I took a step back from a project last season and just banging my head against this move basically just mm. falling off there it was either like hitting the hold or a move after it like it was just it was a bit much and I was just over it and I took a step back for a couple of weeks and went to Nara and had a really fun couple of weekends there yeah and go clip some chains clip some chains and I came back and was so much more motivated like and I immediately got a high point and it was so just awesome to remember that success because it's so easy to get just caught up with falling and remembering yep. how to fall and remembering how much it sucks to fight and how crappy it feels. Yeah. And then you have some success and it's like, oh yeah, I can do this. Like I definitely think that that confidence that you get from that stuff is so invaluable. Yep. And that's another good time to switch to doing sort of second tier, maybe even third tier roots is when you're banging your head against something and your fitness is dropping off because you've only been doing these moves. And and that's a really good time to switch it up and a tough time for people. They're like, I just need to keep hammering away at the project, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I've kind of done it to here and I've done it to there and all I need to do is just get I need that. to get lucky one day. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah, suddenly three years later you can You're still, not still falling off. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I do want to say something else about performance. So yeah. This is something that I think a lot of people miss who are weekend warriors or or especially nowadays with this training craze that's happening, people just want to do cycle after cycle after cycle of training. And lots of people are getting into climbing who don't live near outdoor climbing. So they don't really have a performance season. You know, they go on climbing trips occasionally. So they do cycle after cycle after cycle. And I think that's a big mistake. I think they should have a performance season even if it's in the gym even if it's just traveling to different gyms around your city or in the next city over or you know go to go to just your home wall for two weeks and then when the gym is has a bunch of new problems then go back into the gym and treat it like performance days for a few days in the gym you know i think that Climbing well is so much about the tactics and the mindset that you employ while you're trying to perform that if you're skipping those parts of it and just doing systematic training, then you run the risk of never becoming a good climber, no matter how strong you get. Um, so I think performance phases, even if they're stuck in the gym, should happen for for everybody who wants to be a good climber mm. yeah there's definitely a lot there and and even just if it's to take a 
step back and almost treat it as a <laughs> semi rest in a way from that yeah volume yeah when, it's a good sort of deload from from your training anyway yeah and to feel good about what's going on yep you're like sweet i'm seeing the gains and when do you think it's good you're talking about the cycles and not just backing up training cycle after training cycle but if we go into one of those cycles how do you see changing the protocol or the stimulus like when are we meant to change one of them like if we've Mm. done you know doing max hangs on the fingerboard when do you stop and when it's not working anymore when does that happen it's different for everybody. There's there's a general rule of around four to six weeks you should be switching up the stimulus. And, and I do stick to that for the most part. But I'll also ask the people that I work with, you know, if, if I've got it on the schedule, we're going to do a deload week and then change up the stimulus, switch up the protocols. I'll just ask them early in the week, how are you feeling? Do you feel like you're still making gains? Do you want to continue this phase for an extra week? Oftentimes they say, oh yeah, I feel like I'm just really starting to, everything's clicking. Let's keep it going. Or starting to feel a little fatigued. My weight hasn't gone up in my hangs in the past, you know, two sessions. So then I'm going to cut it off. Um, I th- if if you've got something that works, keep doing it until it doesn't work. Uh, instead of just saying, "Oh, I'm going to try something new," mm. um, and and get all the gains out of it that you can. Obviously, if that goes on for you know longer than six, seven, maybe eight weeks at the most, you're starting to breach this territory of maybe you're risking injury by doing the same thing over and over and over too much. So switch it up Um, and then come back to that protocol that's working after a short break from it. Um, But yeah, I think, I think as a general rule, keep doing it until it stops working for you. And would you, like if we take fingerboarding for an example, it's kind of an easy one. If you're going through some max hangs for six weeks, would you then move into like a, a repeaters type thing or another style of max hang or I would go and listen to the power company podcast with Ava Lopez. That's what I would do. Yeah. Um, I would just switch it up. I don't think it matters that much. If you look at your goals and if your goals are a route here in the blue mountains, then maybe I would switch to a repeater style workout to prepare for that, depending on where in your cycle you are. If you're a boulder and all you want to do is Jade in Rocky Mountain National Park, I'm probably not going to switch to repeaters. I might just switch to a a different style of strength hang. Um, so, so I think it really depends on your goals and I think just switching up the stimulus is enough to ask your body, here's something new to adapt to. Let's do that for a little while. And that just restarts those, those gains, so to speak. I wish it were that simple. It just restarts <laughs> the gains, but, um, eke out the next little bit from the next yeah, program. Yeah. yeah that's a, a big one as well for me recently is keeping track of, 
what it is that I'm doing in each and every session. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is the session I'm doing. This is exactly what happened. This is how I felt during each of those boulder problems. This is my strength session at the end of my bouldering. This is the amount of reps. This is the weight. This is how many times I did it, like completed. And if I didn't complete it, I make a note of that and how hard that was for Mm -hmm. me for each session. And that informs me for the next session of how I want to go about something. And it's really easy to see where you're at for a plateau. So like if I'm doing some strength exercises, like some overhead press and I'm on 20 kilos on a one arm overhead press doing my three sets of three or whatever it is. And in the beginning, I'm at a 10 out of 10 or or, um, maybe I'm at an eight or or whatever. And then I can go... Of your effort? Of my effort, effort. yeah. Yeah. And then I can look at that for next time and go, okay, well, maybe I'll look at maybe going up to 22 kilos. And then if that feels like a nine out of 10, then I'll just kind of maintain that. And for the next two sessions, it kind of stays the same, that amount of weight until I've adapted and it goes down to an eight and a half or an eight out of 10 in effort. And then I know to bump it up another kilo or or whatever it is. And that's been really good for me because in the past I would have just gone, okay, add more weight, add more weight, add more weight. And then I've hurt myself. And so being in tune to actually how it felt last time has been really good to help prevent an injury and not just get over-psyched and throw in an extra rep or an extra kilo or whatever it is. Yeah. And also to track that plateau <clears throat> of when, oh, I've been stuck at this for the last four sessions. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's time to change. Yeah, and I think, you know, as as climbers, I think we've got an advantage um, when it comes to understanding progression and plateaus. If we allow ourselves to use it, I see a lot of people not utilize this advantage that we have. And that's of being able to see small little successes. So if, you know, kettlebells, for instance go up in pretty big jumps. So you might be stuck at this many kilos for this many weeks. And a lot of people see that as I'm not progressing because I'm using this these same kilos. And you're talking about using an RPE measurement, or a rate of perceived exertion measurement, which is great. We can also look at the smaller, more subtle things. Like today in my one-arm overhead press, I was able to breathe better through the whole exercise or I was able to keep my form together better than I was the last session. Um, It may feel really similar on the RPE scale, um, but just being able to breathe better, just being able to keep tension a little bit better, you know, I was able to screw my feet into the ground and keep my glutes tight the whole time. And that's a new step in making a better lift. 
Um, so being able to tune into those small, little, subtle um, progressions in your lifting, in your hangs, in your four by four, in whatever, is really important too. You know, that's how our biggest um, sport climbing, bouldering goals happen are in tiny little progressions. So being able to use that is is a really great tool for climbers. And I'll also say that, you know, by keeping track of all that stuff, you're also giving yourself a, a really great tool that you can look back on over months or years and say, oh, look, I did these things and it worked. Or I did this three-month cycle and didn't really get a whole lot out of it except for this one thing. Um, and then you can use that in the future to build more and more effective training plans. Yeah, I'm always really quite uh, critical of myself and doubt my ability and, and strength and and how hard something is that I've climbed or whatever. And it's been interesting looking back at my training notes and going, oh, maybe I wasn't that crap when I did that route because when I look at what I was doing at the cliff outside of trying to red point, you know, do that first ascent and red point that route, when I didn't have enough juice left in the tank, I was doing these two other routes at the end of the day, which a year ago were really, really, really hard for me. And yeah, you know, you get used to the route and you learn the little tricks and all that, but it was a really cool way of looking back and going, actually, no, I was quite fit and this is what I was doing and this is how I got there. Yeah. And you can kind of use that as stepping stones to get back to that spot. Back to that point. And move through again. So, And then also making note of how you feel through those lifts and, and the training. I've definitely used that as well for my um, red pointing. Sure. It's like, I I felt more relaxed getting to that spot now or I stuck that move four times today. Yeah. Even that, if that's just off the rope. Yep. Tiny little subtleties. And it's just like, yeah, you you got just that little thing and it keeps you motivated and it keeps you coming home with a positive outlook on how it went rather than just going, oh, I'm crap, I'm still falling off there. Yeah. It's, no, I felt better. I've caught this more. Yep. And I, I was having, um, on one of the projects at Elphinstone, my goal I, was almost about my third lap up it in the day was I wanted to increase that high point. On, on attempt three right. of the day, I wanted that high point like a new three to, rep max. Yeah, yeah, I wanted that to be better than actually what my total high point was of the day because it made it feel like the route was becoming easier for yeah, me. For sure. And that was kind of cool. So, yeah, you know, talking about keeping track of things, um, I had a we we've we've built this process journal that we sell that's essentially an a sort of abstract way of looking at um, your sessions or your days and how they go. It doesn't really measure data. It just measures how you feel about a lot of things, what your intentions are, things like that. 
And I took a copy of it up to a friend of mine and a, a really dedicated climber that I worked with named Inga Perkins, who who died in the in an accident in the mountains a couple of years ago, I guess, a um, year and a half ago. And she took a look at it and she's like, this is great, but I would also, if it were me, like to keep track of something that's not climbing related. Like, what do I want to remember about that day? And so I ended up putting that in the process journal and, and that's become a really valuable part of my journal for me is being able to look back and say, Oh, it was, that's the day I was out with, you know, Charlie and Josh or these two climbers or, or whatever, or, Oh yeah. Remember that's the day such and such tripped over his rope and, you know, just these funny little anecdotes from the days or little things that happened or we saw an orchid on the way up to the crag or whatever. You know, those little memories, I think, keep me keep me motivated to, to keep going out and having these experiences, you know. So, so I think it's important, too, to keep some things in your journal that aren't just climbing and, and progress-related. Yeah, I, I bumped into... Um, a, a friend at a comp recently and he had spent a lot of time traveling the world just trying to get like just climb harder and harder and harder and he was world-class looking to you know go hard and he was just psyched on hard projects and pulling hard mm-hmm. and he said one of his biggest regrets of all of that time he spent overseas in in europe and Africa and America and all these amazing places that he's been was just he didn't stop and just have a look around and check out what's out there it was just like let's go to the next cave and pull down hard and, Mm -hmm. and missed that and you can lose a bit of perspective of it's a lot easier to burn out when you're not having life experiences you yeah know. and that's what happened to yep. this guy he just burned himself out mm-hmm. and um yeah it's a bit of a bummer yeah <laughs> for sure um i think just to wrap it all up injuries are apart from life getting in the way injuries are like probably one of the number one things that stop you from climbing or progressing or training or, or whatever it is are there any things that you've learnt throughout your years that help prevent an injury or anything like that? Yeah, so A, I think that talking about preventing injury is is a bit of a I'm not even sure what the word I'm looking for is, but it's we can't prevent injury. You know, they're it's a unicorn. Yeah, they're they're going to happen. You know, it's especially for people who are trying to push their limits. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get injured, period. We can do our best to minimize it. And I think that looking at all the things we've talked about, you know, making sure that you're switching up the protocols when they stop working and thinking about the tactics and making sure that you're not overstressing energy systems that you're using for your projects or you know, all those things are super helpful for minimizing the risk of injury. Getting stronger is probably the best 
injury minimizer that there is. Um, that was a um, podcast on yours recently was the top five reasons to train strength or, or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's super easy to get injured, especially as a climber. We launch ourselves into these crazy positions and, you know, grabbing little matchbook edges or whatever. We're not meant to do that. So getting stronger leading into that is pretty damned important. Um, I would also say one of the most important things I've learned about injury is that most of the time they're not, not only are they not career ending, but they're usually not even season ending. Yes, there are going to be some, but, but resist that urge to completely freak out and, and figure out what it is that you can continue to improve while whatever injury you've got is healing. Um, you know, Lee Kujis is a great example here. He's got a finger injury right now, but he's still hanging in the positions that he can. He's still climbing. We went out and did an FA together just a couple of days ago. Um, he's still getting after it, even though he's got a finger injury that, that he can't even hang body weight in a half crimp anymore. Um, so I think there are ways around most injuries, whether it's continuing to climb, continuing to train other things, um, just working on your craft in general, you know, most strong climbers. And I'll just put this out there that most of the best climbers on the planet can continue to get better without getting stronger. Um, Chris Sharma could improve his technique for sure. Not that he has bad technique. He's a master at what he does, but there are, you know, could he learn to climb better like Dave Graham? Maybe he could. Mm. Um, so, and that could improve his climbing. Um, you, you watch documentaries. We, Amanda and I watched one about Maria Sharapova recently. Mm-hmm. Like for a while, she was the number one tennis player in the world and is still very, very, very good. Right. And she's still having her serve adjusted. And, yeah. you yeah. know, Serena Williams would be the same. Roger Federer is still getting his technique. Mm-hmm. adjusted even though he's known as being one of the best yep. technician tennis players in the world he's still working on his footwork he's still working on how to transition his weight across the court and yep. yeah that's definitely a big one that probably shouldn't ever leave <laughs> your um your week or your year is yeah just and i think that's a helpful way to avoid injury as best you can as well don't put all of your eggs into the basket of i need to get stronger i need to train constantly you can also get better and and you don't have to tax your body as much in order to get better so a blend of the two just means you're going to be a healthier better rounded climber yeah totally you started this podcast off with something really massively important in that you were looking at your goal routes and you said, when's the best time of the year for me to be there at this route? When is it going to be in the best conditions? And I think that's huge. A lot of people get really excited about training. They send me an email or they buy a training plan. And I'm, when I'm talking to them, I'm like, okay, you know, when are the best conditions for your big goals? And they're like, oh, well about, you know, eight months from now, nine months from now. 
And I'm like, well, you just bought a six week training plan. So we should wait, you know, seven and a half months before we start this training plan. And they're like, what do you mean? I want to train right now. I'm like, well, that's great, but it's going to be a longer process. So I think a giving yourself the best chance, give yourself the advantage. That's, that goes for all of this stuff, getting yourself into the gym, making sure your training lines up to put you in position to be at that route or at that boulder when it's the ideal time to climb it and just set yourself up for success um, in, in all the small things and all the big, and I, and I say small things because they're not the things that we're focused on most of the time, but they're actually the big things, you know, the make sure that it fits within my life, make sure that it fits within my schedule, make sure that my family is aware that I want to do these things and there's not going to be a bunch of animosity between my partner and I, or my kids and I, um, give yourself every chance for success right from the get go. And I think you end up in a much better place. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely it. Hey, is if everything is charging towards or just slowly edging towards where you want to be going, then you can't help but find yourself there. Yeah. And I mean, you know, if, if the moon board is your best chance at success, by all means, do it, you know. Otherwise, we're I'm talking so sure. exactly to you, Lee Cooges. <laughs> if you want to get all those benchmarks done on the moon board, you need to be on the moon board. Absolutely. Maybe not for Tiger Cat, though. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Well, thanks so much. And hopefully, there's a bit of information there to nut out for people to yeah, I kind of so. pull some things together. And I've definitely come away with a few little ideas to take into the training season and and the performance season as well. So. Yeah, cool. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I'm uh, I'm really excited that you've got this thing going and I'm looking forward to all the all the interviews. I was just listening to the Lee Cossie episode on my way over here. Yeah. Um so I'm looking forward to learning a lot more about Australian climbing and the history here and all the frothers who the players are. Yeah, all the frothers. <laughs> yeah, frother with an A. With an A. There's no R. I keep making that mistake. Yeah. Adding R's onto the end of Maccas and frothers. No. All A's. <laughs> it's Australia. <laughs> Sweet, mate. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much for listening in. I had a blast chatting with Chris. I hope you're able to get something out of this. I sure did. A quick reminder to check out Chris's podcast, The Power Company Podcast. There's a ton of very, very good training advice in there that perhaps you can take to put into the bigger picture of your training program. If you're liking all the Baffle Days stuff, share the love around with your pals. Tell a friend who up until this point in their life may have been unfortunate enough to have not yet experienced the Baffle Days podcast. What a bummer that is for them. But you can put them out of their misery and let them know. And let them know to follow us on Instagram and subscribe on their podcast app so that when the next episode comes out, they're not missing out again. Now it's time for our last little gold nugget from Chris. I won't keep you waiting any longer. Thanks for listening and catch you on the next episode.
we use skateboarding a lot as a, a metaphor for climbing. And in my um, Boulder Better workshop, I show a video of Tony Hawk doing the first 900. And in the video, you hear Bob Bernquist in the background say, the 900 is 10 years deep with Tony. And that's not entirely even true. He actually tried it five years before that 10-year period started. And he would try it every once in a while, didn't quite understand the rotation and didn't, you know, couldn't feel where he was in the air. He'd already done the 720, just adding 180 on, so it should be trivial. Just spin a little faster, right? Well, he couldn't understand it. Then 10 years, that 10-year period hits, he feels like he's understanding it a little better, learning it a little better, and he tries thousands of times to stick this one trick. Then he doesn't just say, oh, I did the 900, I'm never doing that again. You know, he, he learns it better, he masters it, he puts it in routines, you know, he wants to do it back to back with other hard tricks. And when people see that video, for a lot of people, it's this light bulb moment of, I'm not working on something just to do it once, I'm working on something to become a master at that something difficult. And, and if, if someone comes to me and says, I'm bored by that, I've tried it five times, I'm bored, I'll, I'll start talking micro beta with them. You know, like, well, what about this? How are you taking this? I don't know. Then what are you bored of? If you don't know it all, if you don't understand it yet, what are you bored of? There's so much more to learn and understand about that. If you think you've become the best climber you can be already, then great, I get it. But I don't think I have. I think there's always still something I can learn and become better at when it comes to climbing, and it, it that applies to that route, you know. So if it doesn't work to just convince them via metaphors and showing them why it's a good idea, I'll just make them feel bad. <laughs> 